This morning's scripture is Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come again in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is God's word. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Brent. Um, uh, Scott, thank you for that word that you gave this morning. He mentioned uh, the um, what happened in Charlottesville yesterday. Um, I'm on a text thread with a bunch of pastors. And man, they were stressing like crazy this morning. How are we going to address this? We know we need to. We don't know what to say. And I'm looking at it like, man, that's another day at the office at our church. Um, I don't mean to make light of it, but I'm like, wow. uh, And I don't think that's callousness speaking as much as it is. It's just a reality at our church. Um, Leading renewal is really becoming the joy of my life. Uh, I say becoming, not because I didn't like you people 10 years ago, but... um, (laughs) But <laughs> somebody had a prophetic word over there. Um, well, I kind of did like all of you people. If we're being totally honest, of course, most of you weren't here ten years ago. The rest of them figured out who I was and moved on. So, um, but. Um, yeah, ministry has been a mirror to me. It's been a mirror that God has shown me and showed me my soul. He's shown me my brokenness, my sin, and um, how stupid I was and is. And uh, so as I've made peace with that, that God will relentlessly show me who I am so that I will need him more and more, pastoring has gone from being uh, an exercise in my ego to becoming the joy of my life. And so uh, it was so good to hug some of you this morning after worship and see the tears in your eyes. And, man, I told one guy, I was like, man, I just want to go cry right now somewhere. And he's like, me too. And, and it was, worship was really, really rich. So, um, but I do want to say some things about what happened yesterday. And honestly, the text that we're dealing with this morning addresses that indirectly. It addresses that, um, or directly, depending on how we look at it. Um, but I'm not reorienting my whole sermon around what happened yesterday. I think the text will prophetically speak into it. I will say some things, though. So um, we're going to go ahead and jump right into it. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. I believe that the most important part of a church service is to read publicly God's Word. 
regardless of how it makes us feel, regardless of the emotional uh, reception that we have for it, I think it's the most important thing. It will last forever. It is the revelation of Jesus himself. And so um, I'm going to read through these first few verses again and then make some comments about this in regards to the current series that we're in called Vision. Uh, As we are getting ready to go to double services on September, I forgot, what is it again? 17th at what time? 9.15 and 11. Um, As we're getting ready to do that, I thought it would be a really good idea if we spent a few weeks leading up to it casting vision for why we're doing this. Because, I want to be very clear, double services is not my target. Double services, triple services, all that is not what's going to cause me to get up on a Monday morning feeling deep gladness for what God is doing at our church. I am happy we have that problem. Don't get me wrong. I am happy that we are a growing church. I really am. But that is not what this is all about. And so I want to take the next five or six weeks and talk through what our core goals are. And I would like to allow the text this morning about the birth of the church to frame what we're going for in our church. So again, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Um, In the first book of Theophilus... Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up. So he's talking to the person that he's writing to, and he's this guy named Theophilus, and he says to him, I've been talking to you in another volume, another book. And that other book is the Gospel of Luke, because we believe that Luke wrote the book of Acts. And so he's referencing the Gospel of Luke, and he says, In my other book, I was talking to you, sharing with you details about things that our Savior did and what he said, what he taught. And and that book concludes with a certain date, an absolute date and season in history, and that time was when Jesus was taken from among us. He ascended out of our sight. Somehow we cannot see him in his resurrected physical body. He is with God, Yahweh. He is God. He's at the right hand of God. I can't explain how all that works. But he's taken from our sight. So Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke about the life and the teachings of Jesus up until Jesus ascended out of their sight in physical presence. Now, this is where the book of Acts begins. And he's going to do a little review in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And he says, but right before Jesus ascended, he gave commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And so the question is, what are those commands that he's talking about? Those commands, I would argue, frame the entire book of Acts. I don't think we can really understand the overarching story and point of the book of Acts unless we revisit the commands that Jesus gave to his disciples that laid the groundwork and set the table for the book of Acts. So what are those commands that he gave his disciples? If you would join me in Luke 24, verses 46 through 49. Luke 24, 46 through 49, Jesus said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ 
should suffer on the third day, uh, should suffer and on the third day, pardon me, rise from the dead. So he suffered that Friday. He was in the grave on Saturday. And then day three, he rose from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name, his name only, to all nations. Would you say nations? That word nations is where we get our English word ethnic. Ethnic. In the Greek, that word there is ethne. It's where we get our word ethnic from. Think about that in light of yesterday, what we saw on television. That the gospel should be taken to every ethnic group on planet earth. What does this tell us about how God feels about every ethnic group on planet earth? Anybody? You're mumbling. Come on. Own your opinion. He loves them all. He loves them all so much that he's willing to what? Die. That's how much he loves every ethnic group on planet earth. Even the ones that we don't like. Did he really just say that? Yes. So many of us, let's be honest, struggle with varying degrees of bigotry, racial animosity. And this text directly confronts that satanic sin. It directly confronts that. So repentance and forgiveness is to be proclaimed. God wants to give what if people repent? Forgiveness. To who does he want to give, to whom does he want to give that to? All nations, all ethnic groups. What does that say about how God feels about all of us? He loves us. And I'll take it a step further because love in our little evangelical Christian world means a variety of things depending on our baggage. God wants to be with us. He wants to be at our table. He wants us to be at his table, better said. He wants to be with us. He wants to experience us. He wants to be in our presence and enjoy us. Every ethnic group on planet earth. He says, you are my witnesses. Hold on to that word witnesses too. Of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And so just in review, these are the instructions or the commands that God gave his disciples. Let me say it this way. It might be better to say, this is the story that Jesus gave to his disciples. And he said, this is the story that you are to take and proclaim all over planet earth. And in a nutshell, it's this. That the Christ should suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. That repentance and forgiveness of sins must be proclaimed worldwide to every ethnic group on planet earth beginning at Jerusalem. Because that's where they live. That's part of the reason. He says, you are witnesses of these things. Witnesses of what? That the Christ taught 
and did miracles and suffered and died and was raised from the dead. You are witnesses of these things. He says, remain in Jerusalem until you are clothed with power so that you can accomplish the commands that I'm giving you. What is the command that he's giving them to do worldwide? To proclaim what? Starts with R, sounds like repentance, <laughs> repentance and forgiveness of sins. That's what he wants us to tell lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of people. No matter what they look like, no matter what neighborhood they live in, no matter what their background is, no matter what their religion is, no matter what their sexual orientation is, no matter who they are, God says, I want you to take my message to every single person on planet earth and tell them that I love them. They've got to repent, exchange their ways for my ways because I want to forgive them because I want to be with them forever. I'm recreating Eden. And it's going to be awesome. Man, that prayer Ron prayed at the end of communion, man, that was insanely good. We could have stopped the service right there. If you came to get something out of today, we could have stopped the service right there. Remain in Jerusalem until you're clothed with power because you can't do it without the Holy Spirit. Can't do it. Can't do it. And so what's Jesus's primary command? proclaim repentance and forgiveness to all ethnic groups on planet earth. And he says, you do this because you're my witnesses. Now I want to talk about that word witness just for a moment. This is more of an aside than it is a major sermon point. Um, In Galatians chapter three, verse one, Paul is writing to the Galatian believers and the Galatian believers are in a really precarious place theologically and spiritually. On Paul's first missionary journey, he visited this region of Galatia, which is known today as the nation of Turkey. And in that area, he established a group of churches that followed Jesus. And these people began, their faith in Jesus began to be eroded to the point that they felt that Jesus was no longer supreme and could not finish the work that was begun in them. And so they reasoned among themselves, Jesus is good, but he needs some help in my life. So let's return to the works of the law, the observance of the works of the law, so that we can prop up Jesus and give him a crutch, so that we'll make sure that we're really saved and we'll really go to heaven. And Paul says these words to them, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? What spell are you under? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. That's just not true. They weren't there when Jesus was crucified. Oh my gosh, we found a mistake in the Bible. They weren't there. They were not physically present at the crucifixion. We know that. But in Paul's mind, and if you're listening online with the millions around the world, um, <laughs> that was more of a tongue-in-cheek comment. There's, I don't believe there are any mistakes in Scripture. Um, that's another debate. But, um, but in Paul's mind, the salvation that was given 
to the Galatian believers was so profound that when they began to apostatize the faith or back away from the faith, compromise their faith and reject the supremacy of Jesus, their faith was so profound that Paul said to them, It is as though you were standing there on the hill called Golgotha and you were watching our Savior suffer. It was as though you were there. That is how profound faith in Jesus is. Real faith in Jesus. You are eyewitnesses of the crucifixion of Christ. How dare you? You can hear him saying this. How dare you? dare you question the legitimacy and the, super, and the superiority of Jesus? How dare you? And so if that was true of the Galatian believers, do you think that is also true of anyone who has legitimate faith in Christ? To be clear, because not all of you are nodding, and that is... A, uh, a very obvious question. It should be an obvious answer to that. So I want to make sure you understand what I'm saying. If it was true for the Galatian believers who were not there when Jesus was crucified, some of them weren't even born yet. If it was true for them that because of how profound salvation is, so profound that even though they weren't physically there, Paul can go to them and say, hey, have you forgotten that you were eyewitnesses of the crucifixion? Is that also true of us who have the same salvation that they have? So then we are all eyewitnesses of the crucifixion. Those of us who claim to see Jesus and know Jesus. This is huge. Because if that is true... That is going to help us have a whole new category for Acts chapter 1. You're probably smelling what I'm stepping in right now. This wasn't just a job for 12 dudes to do. This was the whole church. Evidenced in Acts chapter 2 that there was more than just 12 dudes in a room praying, waiting for the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. How many were there? Anybody know? 120. The entire church that existed worldwide at that point was in that upper room and every one of those 120 believers experienced a rushing mighty wind, tongues of fire, and they proclaimed the gospel and the glory of God in languages that they didn't know. And all those who were celebrating the Feast of Pentecost who were outside of that room and were privy to this were blown away because they thought, whoa, 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 wait a second. We're hearing our regional language with this strange Galilean accent and there's no way any of these guys could know this language. There aren't any, there aren't any colleges and universities up in Galilee. There's no way they would have learned this. What is going on? All that, those 120 believers were all eyewitnesses of the crucifixion. All of us who claim to follow Jesus are eyewitnesses of the crucifixion. That's huge. So let's go back to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. He presented himself in verse 3, alive to them. Now we're reviewing, Luke is reviewing what he said in Luke chapter 24. He presented himself alive to them, to his disciples, 
after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. For 40 days, they had church services. And he preached one sermon. For 40 days, or one subject. He preached and taught about the kingdom of God. Now, the number 40 is significant. I don't want to get carried away. Sometimes numerologists get really carried away. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just ignore that part. But I do think 40 is significant. For 40 years, Israel dwelt in the wilderness as God was preparing them to take possession of the promised land. For 40 days, Jesus was in the wilderness as he was being prepared for the launch of his public ministry. He was being tempted by Satan. He overcame that and he launched into public ministry. And for 40 days, the church is in this strange period. They don't really know who they are. They don't know what they're supposed to do. Jesus has said, take the gospel all around the world to every ethnic group. They've got no strategy. They've got no plan. They've got no engine. The Holy Spirit has not been given to them yet. And so they're the strange in-between. And Jesus, for 40 days, is preparing the church for its primary mission. For 40 days... Jesus spent time with his church, preparing his church for their primary mission. All right. Now, I want to talk for a moment about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, I heard one author once said it this way about some big weighty concepts in the Bible, that oftentimes words and phrases are like a piece of luggage. The kingdom of God is like a piece of luggage full of stuff. And the kingdom of God is a phrase that is a shorthand for a bunch of ideas stuffed into this suitcase. And so you're carrying it around, and the name of that luggage is, that suitcase is the kingdom of God, K-O-G. You're carrying it around. Get to your hotel room or you get home, you unbuckle it, you open it, and all this stuff comes out. That's all the details, the nuances, all the weeds of the kingdom of God. All the minutiae. So the kingdom, just to be, just to sort of define it first, the kingdom of God, kingdom means simply rule and reign. So we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking primarily, boiled down the rule and reign of God. That's the kingdom of God. The rule and reign of God. What is it again? Now, some of us think realm, place. It will one day be a place. I mean, God is king of the earth now. But there will be a time when this earth is in alignment with his ways. That's the new creation. That's what Ron was praying about. We're reaching for that. Now, we don't make that happen. God makes that happen. It is an unstoppable future reality. Nothing will stop the new creation. It is an irresistible force. It is a reality that every person on planet earth will face. That this earth 
every molecule spinning that has ever been made will align with the rule and the reign of God. Now, let me say a few more things about the kingdom of God. Let's unpack this luggage for a second. Jesus speaks in Luke 17 about receiving the kingdom of God and how the kingdom of God is among us or in us. So we're not just talking only about an outside ruler who is standing over us. We're talking about an inside ruler who is conforming us, who is changing us, who is aligning us with his ways. We we receive the kingdom of God. And so when we receive the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus, we receive God's kingly rule over our lives and through our lives. That's important. Huge distinction. This is why when you go to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7... Jesus talks about the character of the kingdom of God that we who follow Jesus should expect to see manifest in our lives. And here's some examples. The character of the kingdom in us that will manifest in our behavior looks like some of these things. Humility. You could read about that in Matthew 5 verse 3. A willingness to suffer persecution for the kingdom of God. 5 verse 10. I know some of these we don't like. We don't want to hear that part. The first one, uh, humility. Okay. Willingness to suffer. Can we skip that one? An earnest attention to God's commandments. Matthew five nineteen. Another aspect of the kingdom of God is a refusal to substitute false piety for genuinely righteous behavior. People who are of the kingdom and have the kingdom in them don't cover up a bunch of sin with a bunch of ecstatic worship on Sundays. People who are of the kingdom and the kingdom is flowing through them get it that God wants them to have a praying life. Matthew 6, verses 10 and 13. People that are of the kingdom and have the kingdom flowing through them, these are people who are learning to prioritize spiritual wealth over material wealth. To the point... To the point that material wealth brings us little, a little sense of identity or none. I'm not saying it, we can't be glad over material things. God's created this world. He created it for us to enjoy. This world is not inherently bad. It's controlled by bad people, bad systems, bad demonic forces. But this world, in essence, is good. And God has given this world to enjoy, but not to worship. And we can't find our identity in the things of this world. So there's that tension we live in as believers, enjoying the good gifts of God, and at the same time, finding our identity in Jesus, satisfying us more than anything else. That's a lifetime affair. 
Above all, the kingdom of God is acknowledging Christ's lordship by obeying the revealed will of God. Now, if I were you sitting in those chairs, and I know there aren't enough this morning, don't quit coming until September 17th, or we're going to kick you out of the church. Um, I'm kidding. We won't do that. But please bear with us. Suffer with us for a few weeks. Suffer with us. If you're sitting there in these chairs, if I'm sitting there in these chairs, I'm, prob- I'm always thinking, now what are they thinking right now? Is what I'm saying reasonable? Is it logical? Is it doable? And if I'm you, some of you, I'm thinking, how in the world am I going to pull this off? I'm trying to stop yelling at my wife and kids, and you want me to suffer for the faith? I'm trying, to, I'm trying to just make it through tomorrow and the toxic swamp that I go to work in every day. And you want me to do all this stuff? I'm going to say something that's a little bit enigmatic. I'm not going to explain it. I'm just going to hand it to you and let you chew on it for the rest of your life. This is so practical. It's great. Um, I don't say this to be condescending, to talk down to you. This is something that I'm learning. And for those of you who hunger and thirst, you will join me on this. These things are not things that you do. These are gifts that you are given. That's maybe the greatest thing I've ever learned in following Jesus. These are not things that you do. These are gifts that we are given. Chew on that for the rest of your life. But the kingdom also has a lot to do with this age. And Jesus describes the kingdom as something that manifests. And when it manifests, a lot of people don't even see it. It works quietly behind the scenes, under the surface. It gradually leavens our world. It seems like there are times where you're like, where is the kingdom? If God is so so powerful and so amazing, why aren't more good things happening in our world? Jesus addresses this in his teachings. And that's why he tells us not to be coaxed into a stupor by the things of our world. Be ready. Be looking. We never know. We never know when God will return and consummate his kingdom and fill the earth with his glory. We don't know. And we are reaching for something that also is part in that bag, a big, big, big compartment in that bag. Like, what is the most important thing that you pack when you go on vacation? Come on, what's the thing that you cannot forget? Underwear? What else? My wife said snacks. What, what, what is it that if you got to the airport and you were like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe I forgot this. I've got to get to Walgreens as soon as I get off the plane. What is it that you're thinking about? Toothbrush, for me, that's not that big of a deal. But what? Identification. That's a big one. What's another one that you like, I've got to have this when I get in that plane? My phone. 
got to have my phone if I miss that Facebook notification. I'll be in turmoil all day. Now, there's one part of the luggage here that is the most important part. It's the new creation. Because all this stuff that we're talking about, humility, love, the kingdom of God that Jesus is preparing for his servants is not just for anybody. And people get hung up on this. We've got to remember, when God created the earth, he did not make us androids. I must obey, I must obey, I cannot disobey. He didn't make us that way. He gave us a will. He said, there's a tree in the middle of the garden. Don't eat from it. Don't do it. Don't do it. And they did it. The first, the first chance you had, you did it. Like, wow. The new creation is not for robots and androids. The new creation is for people who are living following Jesus, under Jesus' rule, who are making a decision day by day to devote their lives to Jesus. And here's what's amazing about grace. We are going to stumble. We are going to trip. We are going to fall. And because of grace, he lifts us back up and he walks with us. The new creation belongs to only two people who want it. Not people who are forced to have it. The new creation is only a gift to people. It's not a coercion. This is why humility is not a coercion. God will not make you humble. He will allow things in your life that will give you the opportunity to learn humility. But he's not going to make you humble. Anytime somebody tells to me, I hit the, I mean, I hit rock bottom and I knew that I'd change. I'm like, no, it doesn't mean you'll change. It just means that your life really sucks right now. (laughs) You are not going to change just because you hit rock bottom. The only way you will change is when you embrace healthy shame. I cannot do this alone and I need Jesus. I need him. That's what, that's happened and is happening to me. I've not arrived. I'm not, please don't hear that. Is it time to end the service? Just heard a signal. Um, I think so. Uh, so we're getting there. Um, you always know when football season's about to start too, because you'll start hearing, da-da-dun, da-da-dun, you know, when the <laughs> Titans are about to kick off. Um, we'll have two services. So don't everybody come to the first and go to brunch. <laughs> like somebody told me the other day. Um, where was I? I have no idea. The kingdom is a gift. And it is only a gift for people who have already seen, learned to see humility as a gift. Suffering as a gift. I'm not saying you got to like it. I had a friend text me yesterday. My mother-in-law is in a lot of pain. She's suffering right now. She's terrified. If Jesus doesn't step in, her passing may be soon. And we are really, really scared. And, you know, in those moments, it's, we all have our theologies on suffering and why God does and doesn't allow things or do things. And all of a sudden, it gets blown up when you're in the middle of it. Nothing makes sense. Nothing makes sense. I'm not saying you've got to like this stuff. But all of these things, trusting Jesus, being with him in prayer, a life of humility, these are all gifts 
from Jesus to all of us. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't say end with a few things. Um, I'm not going to finish this sermon again, just like I did last week. Um, I'm discovering that this is actually three sermons, not one. I want to get back to verse 4 and bring this, uh, bring this in for a landing. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. We must be Holy Spirit dependent. Verse 6, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. I wish people who were fixated on end-time theology would read that verse. Because it is not for us to know those things. I'm not saying we shouldn't be intrigued by that and be interested in it and even study it because it's in the Bible. But some of us are so, we neglect the church's primary calling so that we can walk into and stay in theological intrigue and doctrinal debate and end time intrigue and all this stuff when Jesus is saying, like he said to his disciples, these two guys in robes appeared to Jesus' disciples. They're looking up after Jesus is taken away from them and they said, why are you looking up? What are you doing? I can imagine them coming up and going, Do what he said to do. And of course, it's repeated. Verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I mentioned already that God loves all ethnic groups. But I want to be very clear about something. Any kind of... Any person, I should say, who calls themselves a follower of Jesus Christ, who sympathizes with any kind of bigoted nationalistic movement, is in sin. And I'm, I'm talking about the KKK. I'm talking about the so-called alt-right movement. I'm talking about white nationalism. Throwing your hat in with any group that even remotely condescends another ethnic group grieves the heart of the maker of every ethnic group and is a tragic and demonic lie and we must repent of that. Is that clear? All right, let's pray. I'm kidding. Um, I love uh, the words of Albert Moeller. He's the um, brilliant man, um, the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He said it this way, much, much better than I can. He said, I would argue that racial superiority in any form and white superiority as the central issue of our concern is a heresy. The separation of human beings into ranks of superiority and inferiority differentiated by skin color is a direct assault upon the doctrine of creation and an insult to the Imago Dei, which is Latin for the image of God, that all people have. 
in which every human is made. Racial superiority is also directly subversive to the gospel of Christ, effectively reducing the power of his substitutionary atonement and undermining the faithful preaching of the gospel to all nations. If you want that quote, I'll be happy to give it to you. Um, This is why our church looks like it does. I didn't do this. My dad stood in a chair about 25 years ago and said, we're going to be a multiracial church. And a quarter of our church didn't come back the next Sunday. It was a fun, fun time. (laughs) (laughs) Giving went way up. (laughs) Membership skyrocketed. (laughs) But people began making decisions. They began hearing about the legacy that, that I've inherited, that there's a place in Memphis where people can come and be a part of a church where no matter what your skin color is, you're going to be welcomed here. And, you know, I don't preach on it that much. It's the same thing with, like, our greeting culture here. Have you noticed that we're a really, really friendly church? Uh, You can say okay to that. I know there are some things that we do really crappy around here. I know that. But there are things that we do really good, too. And one of the things that we do really well is we are a really hospitable, kind church. I don't ever preach on that. Not directly. I don't have to do, like, you know, invitations for people to be nice on Sundays. If you feel God's calling you to be nice, come down to the altar and our elders will pray with you. We don't do that at our church. It's just like part of our legacy. It's part of our DNA. It's who we are. When you join and become part of us, you can't help but to know, okay, church garbage and toxic stuff that we've done elsewhere does not fly here. We won't put up with it. We're just not going to put up with it. Um, This is why we have a diverse church. Our diversity is a direct reflection for our heart for the gospel that every ethnic group would experience the forgiveness of God and reconciliation with Him. This is who we are. And so that means that there are going to be Sundays when I've got to go over and talk about what happened in Charlottesville rather than just making a statement. If I led an all-white church, I could make a statement. If I led an all-black church, I could make a statement. I can't do that here. I can't do that here. Not that culture controls the pulpit. It doesn't. I don't think it does. But we're going to respond to things that are making it hard for us to follow Jesus. And I want to remind all of us, i got one thing to say I want to close with. Make sure that your call to justice does not overshadow and obscure our church's call to mission. Sometimes in our call to justice, we can be spiteful and hateful and mean-spirited to the very people as despicable as their ideology may be, as despicable as their ideology may be, people that Jesus was lashed for and suffered for and bled for and died for. Let's not forget that Jesus put on the skin, the olive skin of a Jewish man in the first century. And that skin suffered for black skin, for white skin, and all the other spectrum of skin colors that we have out there. This is who we are as a church, which means there are going to be times where we're going to feel conflict in our church. We're going to feel it's going to hurt at times. I wanted to get up here at the beginning of my sermon and say, hey, doesn't today feel amazing? Isn't our church so friendly? And everybody at that time would say, yeah, praise God, hallelujah, glory, yeah. 
And then I wanted to chase it by saying this. Love is hard. And just because you don't like people in this room doesn't mean that this isn't real. Because walking out love is hard. It requires humility, suffering, all that. And those attributes, you don't white-knuckle it getting there. You give yourself to Jesus. And Jesus gives himself to you. And he gives you the gifts of humility and love self-control. You start to notice that I'm being really condescending towards another person. I'm saying things to take a dig at that person and that wasn't right. That's what happens when Jesus gives you his love. That's not cool anymore. And so we're all walking the path of love. Jesus, I thank you for today. I feel like it was a total mess. But I do pray that you would take statements that were said comments that were made and use them to shape the people of God in beautiful ways. Help us to look more and more and more like you, Jesus. We want you. We pray for the city of Charlottesville right now. We pray that you would bring healing. We pray that courageous people who stand for righteousness and justice, that they would continue to be courageous. Help us to be courageous with them. Help us, Lord. We pray, Jesus, that you would use the church of Jesus Christ to heal the seeping, infected racial wound in our country. Beginning with us here in Memphis, Tennessee. I pray, Jesus, that we would reject racial bigotry. Even if we feel like we can justify our behavior, let us repent and reject any condescending, sense of superiority that we think we may have over others the truth is is that you put any of us in their story and we would look just like them and so God we thank you that you put us in your story so we could look like you we are grateful for your salvation it is a gift it's not by any merit of our own or good deeds of our own it is only a work of grace in our lives and we are humbled by that and are thankful for that in Jesus' name. Amen.